0: This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information.
1: Astronomy Cast, episode 292 for Monday, February 4th, 2013, The Oort Cloud. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville and the director of CosmoQuest.org. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing well, Fraser. How are you doing?
1: Great. So I, I'm not sure if anyone's going to get this, but we're going to be at uh, South by Southwest in Austin uh, for the the uh, South by Southwest Interactive Exhibit with NASA, and we're going to be near the uh, the great big model of the James Webb Space Telescope from March 8th to the 10th. And so if you're going to be in Austin, uh, by all means, come by and and say hi to us.
0: And, and we are going to be doing a meetup because our meetup is the NASA tent. So just come join us, no bracelet required, open no, yeah. and free to everyone.
1: Yeah, we'll be there for three straight days. By all means, come by, say hi, shake your hands. Okay, great. Well, then let's get going with the show. This
0: episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light, Inc. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.eighthlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8thlight.com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft.
1: So, the very outer reaches of the solar system is a region of space known as the Oort Cloud, which may extend as far as a light year from the sun. We only know about the Oort Cloud because that's where the long period comets come from, randomly falling into the inner solar system from time to time. So, Pamela, this is a this is a funny thing where we've got an object, a structure, a thing in space that we actually have never seen. Right? We only just sense, detect. You know, we have to presume that it's there, but we actually can't see it.
0: And and it's it's really annoying because there's so many different things that it might be affecting. There there are people that hypothesize that this. A uh, continuous shell of icy material and dust around our solar system creates reddening. There are people that say oh. that perhaps it's impacting our ability to measure distances, that uh, perhaps it's impacting how we observe the cosmic microwave background, and we don't know. So there's all these things that, that its presence may or may not be be affecting, and that's kind of
1: really super annoying. I had no idea. That's really interesting. So, you can imagine that it's that it, depending on what the composition is of the, of the Oort cloud, which we'll explain in a second, but now I'm just, you know, excited thinking about this, <laughs> that it's actually distorting our view of the cosmos because it's this yeah. bubble that could be this bubble around us. Okay. Well, then, for, for anyone who doesn't know, well, let's go back again and actually talk about like what is the Oort cloud?
0: It's basically this two component glob of stuff. So to get scientific. That was very is, scientific. Yeah. <laughs> there there is there is considered to be for the Oort cloud two components. One, the big sphere that everyone talks about that is is, yeah, it's roughly a light year across, 0. 0.8 light years to, yeah. to be more accurate, is its theoretical outer limit. And that's based on how far away can something be and still be gravitationally attached to our solar system. And it's considered to be the source of some of our longest period comets. And the things out in it are, are considered to be uh, like building and small moon-sized chunks of ice. But because we can't observe these suckers, we really don't know what their limitations are. So this could be just a big brother to the Kuiper Belt, in which case we have a bunch more of these little dwarf planets out there. It could be limited to smaller objects. We don't know. And then nested inside this big spheroid of material is what's what's called uh, the hill zone. These these are um, a disk-like component to the Oort cloud.
1: And so, where did the Oort cloud come from?
0: Well, it's it actually came from a variety of different places, depending on who and which theories that you adopt. Um, most likely, it came from a combination of places. Both from during the formation of our solar system, the outer parts of our solar system were mingling with the outer parts of other solar systems, and we stole what we could gravitationally. So, some of the constituency of the Oort cloud is probably stolen material from other solar systems.
1: Right. I can, you can imagine if it's if it's this cloud, a light year or point eight of a light year across. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big bubble that surrounds the solar system. You can imagine these these star systems. You know, they're Oort clouds passing through each other and material jumping ship from one right. place to another. Yeah.
0: And and so this this is one of the more intriguing things is we probably have some stolen material. And occasionally the stolen material gets gravitationally bumped until it comes into our inner solar system where potentially we can sample it. So that's kind of cool to
1: think about. Oh, and I'm sorry. (laughs) But this is I just had an idea. I mean, so the theory like I know that when we do meteorite samples in the solar system, we find, you know, that all the meteorites tend to have the exact same formation date, right? They all formed, you know, 4.6 billion years ago with the formation of the earth and the sun and all of that. But can you imagine if we found, as you said, a sample of one of these comets that had a different age?
0: And, and it's, it's harder with ice to do that because really you're dealing with ammonia and frozen methane and carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide and all these frozen gases. So it, it's a bit more difficult to age date them, but you can look at the compositional ratios and say the composition of this object doesn't match anything else we've seen. Now the issue is... Um, Comets have a huge variety, so we're still trying to figure out what exactly is within normal boundary parameters for a comet. But the more we explore the Kuiper Belt, the more we'll understand what something that probably formed with our solar system should look like, so that in the future as we look at these long period comets coming into our solar system, hopefully we'll be able to say which ones are native and which ones, well, are the explorers of other solar systems.
1: Okay, so so we stole material yes. from other solar systems. So that's
0: part of the source and, of the Oort cloud,
1: right? Maybe, probably, who knows? Yeah.
0: And and then the rest likely came from uh, the what can best be described as the angry dance of Saturn, Jupiter, Uranus, and Neptune in the early days of the solar system. As Jupiter and Saturn passed through having resonant orbits, they basically flung material in all directions. Um, some of this material, roughly a quarter of it, got flung into the inner solar system. Roughly a quarter of it got flung out of the solar system entirely, but then probably about half of this material ended up getting sent into extremely elliptical orbits—orbits orbits that will mirror what we see for the long-term, long-period comets. But because of the nature of the interactions once that stuff gets out there, because the material does spend the bulk of its time at its most distant points in its orbit. This is true of every orbiting object. It's it's the Kepler's equal area and equal time law, where when you're in close, you sweep out this very fast angle so that you can sweep out an equal area to the amount that you, when you're further out, sweep out in, in the same amount of time as you move much, much slower. Now, Once the objects are out there, they have the potential to gravitationally interact with other stars, with dark molecular clouds, with all these different things that we see as our solar system passes through the galaxy. And all of these different interactions, even, well, Oort belt object on ort belt object interaction, um, all of these different interactions can work to smooth out those orbits to make them more and more spherical, more and more circular over time to create this distributed sphere weight of material.
1: Right, and I guess that was sort of leading into my question, which is that you can imagine if there is these interactions of the giant planets in our solar system kicking all of these objects out into the outer solar system, you would think that they would all be on these these you know, parabolic or, uh, orbits or you know where they're going out and they're all going to come back in this material just keeps keeps doing these orbits like the comets do but i can i can see that once they get out there they have these interactions maybe interactions with other stars and it just changes their orbits and three-body interactions and eventually you get it being you know whatever remained is a cloud and everything else got gobbled up by the sun or
0: and the things that are on parabolic and hyperbolic orbits, they might pass through the inner solar system once and then they're gone. And, and it's the elliptical ones, Well, some of them remain as comets, some of them uh, did have circular orbits and then got disrupted again and became comets. Um, but most of the stuff, yeah, the orbits relax over time and we end up with this nice spherical component um, we theorize. It seems to match all of the comets that we see coming in. They have to come from somewhere but we don't have certainty.
1: Right. And so, so okay, so we've we've got sort of a source, an idea of maybe the source of this cloud. Now, what about the discovery and, and the name? So where did that come from?
0: <laughs> well, the, the name comes um, from the person who finally got the, the theory listened to. Um, there, there's And this is one of those horrible examples of science that things get named after whoever has the uh, most... Um, loud way of presenting the information. So back in 1932, Estonian astronomer Ernst Uppik, I think I pronounced that one correctly, um, said that...
1: Estonians, please tell us. He
0: he theorized that all of these long-period comets that are coming at us from all different directions. So so unlike most of the things that we see in our solar system, their orbits aren't confined to the, the plane of our solar system. They don't come from the same place that we see asteroids coming from. Rather, they're coming from all directions, completely randomized. And the only way to get to this completely randomized um, origins is, is if you have this orbiting cloud at the outermost edge of our solar system. So, so he put forward this theory and then in the 1950s, it was um, re-theorized a second time, rediscovered, if you will, by Jan Hendrik Ortt. And, and it was a way to try and understand where, again, are all of these comets coming from and trying to understand why it is that all of these comets have such unstable orbits that we see. So when you see these sun grazers, when you see these clearly parabolic and hyperbolic orbits, which means they come in once and they're gone forever, well, those clearly aren't things that, like, the planets are orbiting over and over and over. So where are they coming from that they can keep getting renewed? And the only way to solve this paradox was to create a reservoir of comet material in the outer solar system. So later in the 1950s, ORT made this postulation. Let's face it, the word ORT is much more fun to say than upik. Um So... Or ended up getting to name or getting his name associated with this cloud of material in the outer solar
1: system. So what about the Hills cloud then?
0: That that again is a theorist came along, worked on postulating, well, how do we, we explain all the distributions of material? And and since it's a mostly random but not entirely random distribution where there is this preferential t- preference towards things being in the plane that preference can get explained by a second component that overloads the plane of the oort cloud
1: but is it one of those situations where there's a there's a uh, there's extra comets coming from yeah. from that region and then that would be explained by this this gravitational balance second component to, yeah to give you this hills cloud and yeah. so right and then i mean but again this is pretty tricky right because there's no observable right. observable evidence for for this cloud at all.
0: But but the the way to think of it is so if you're getting sprayed with water, you know there's going to be either a cloud or a hose involved. And depending on how you're getting sprayed with water, you can start to figure out what characteristics the source of the water must have. And and so here we're seeing the outcome, the water falling on us. And and so we, we have to put together the pieces of what must be some of the characteristics. Now, if, if you can detail how far away the water is coming from, you, you start to be able to put, place boundary conditions. And the comets, well, they're the frozen water that's falling on us that places the boundary conditions on the physics that helps us describe this unseen uh, frozen water faucet in the sky.
1: So let's talk about the comets that are coming out of the Oort cloud, because that's, that's what we ha- do have that direct experience with. What kinds of comets do we get from, from this cloud?
0: Well, for the most point, they're long period comets, things like Hale-Bopp that have, have orbits that are measured not in lifetimes, but in generations, the rise and fall of empires. These are thousand year periods in some cases but then we also get a few interesting exceptions like halley's comet which through interactions that it had with jupiter in the past at least we think it was jupiter in the past its orbit got changed so that it's now a shorter period comet but its crazy orientation indicates that well it's it's not one of the ones that originated in the kuiper belt
1: so a, you know with a kuiper belt object we're going to be looking at like what kind of period? These are the short period comets. I mean, they're the, measured so in they're dozens of years. Of, yeah, yeah, so
0: tens of years, hundred years ish. Right. it's that orbit, order of magnitude. But with the long period comets, you're looking at order thousands, of thousands of years.
1: Thousands and hundreds of thousands. So really, every yeah. comet is completely unique. You've, you know, the first time you see one of these long period comets, you're never going to see it again.
0: And and that's one of the frustrations. And and one of the other frustrations is even the ones that. How Even the Oort cloud objects that do start to dip their way into our solar system, they have such extremely long orbits that they may not spend very much time in an observable part of our solar system. So a lot of scientists think that the uh, dwarf planet Sedna, it's, it's about, we think, roughly 1,500 kilometers across. It, it comes in to just 75 astronomical units from the sun. And that's an extremely large distance. Compare that to the thirty-five to forty-five of most of the objects that we're looking at. That's its nearest approach.
1: Right, and then (laughs) it then goes out to like what, like ten thousand, a thousand, thousand, yeah, a thousand astronomical units, yeah, and takes. 10,000 years or something to do this orbit like it's crazy so
0: so and then we have other objects with with less beautiful names um, where there's 2006 sq 372 Um, it's a 100 kilometer cross object we're able to find it because it came all the way into about 25 astronomical units so that's inside the orbits of the outermost planets and um, it then will go back out to 2000 astronomical units
1: by any other name, these would be comets. I mean, if they got closer in to the sun... But they so would Pluto. So would Pluto. True. Yeah, so would Enceladus. But they would grow a tail, and it would be... I mean, can you imagine if Sedna or one of these got within the... You know, within within like Mercury's distance yeah. or Venus's distance of the sun. Massive it would grow tail. a tail. It would be unbelievable. I mean, most comets are only, what, 10, 20 kilometers? I mean, they're small. Yeah. And so these would be the brightest objects you know ever seen They'd be and unbelievable. and
0: that would be kind of cool
1: it wouldn't it
0: but yeah. but unfortunately the bigger an object is the more force is required to disrupt its orbit so the the likelihood that the big ones are going to get jostled enough to come in and pay us a visit is fairly low but luckily the small ones are fairly easy to jostle into a visit
1: but the small ones are also really dangerous
0: Yes, yes. Uh, Tenguska experienced that back in the early 1900s, out over Siberia, where like roughly a thousand square miles of trees got damaged and or flattened, and windows shook for thousands of miles. It it was a big event, and um, yeah. So we, we try to avoid getting too close to comets, um, but but they're not something we can exactly move our planet out of the way of
1: yeah i mean we've talked about this a bit in in past shows that with the asteroids you can predict sometimes it you know 100 years in advance that an asteroid is is in a dangerous orbit and you can take that time to research it and study it and move a spacecraft out and and try to use a gravity tractor paint it or you know shoot it with with uh nukes or whatever you're going to do you've got time and with the even with the short period comets, you've got time. Yeah. But with the long period comets, you have months, and then pow.
0: If that, I mean, one, of, one of the unfortunate things is because they do have such highly elliptical orbits, you, you basically are, are making a knife's edge pass through the solar system. So depending on unfortunate geometric circumstances, it could be that something comes in from behind the sun that we don't notice until it's making a pass basically out of the part of the sky that the sun is located in straight at the planet Earth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that is the worst case scenario, and and I mean, that's really,
0: essentially what happened with the small asteroid that blew up over Russia is it came out of the direction of the sun, and we just didn't have early warning and thus a billion ruples worth of blo- broken windows and other damage
1: and i'm I'm getting surprised how big that asteroid was compared to what you know originally people were saying it was like seventy tons, and now it's like seven thousand yeah, tons and it's and tons. it's a yeah, it's a actually a pretty big rock, so um. Okay, cool. So now uh, you, you actually started off at the beginning of the show. You were talking about how this cloud might actually be affecting our view of the universe. So can you right. talk about that a bit more?
0: Well, You're so, freaking me out. <laughs> so it, it's probably only a few tens of Earth masses worth of material. So order of 50 to 100 Earth masses at most. But that material in some cases is, is a sphere of basically dust. So you have chunks of ice that are colliding with one another, that are letting off this fine-grained particle as they crash into one another. If you've ever seen the images of geysers coming off of Enceladus, there may be material like what you see coming off the geysers created through the collisions of these objects over the billions of years. Now, we don't know that for sure. It, it could be that they're just nice chunks of ice that because they're so far apart from one another, collisions are so remarkably rare that it, it is a land of no dust. But we don't know. And, and if there is this fine-grained particulate out there, this, this dust, it, it could be acting to scatter the blue light that's trying to travel its way into our inner solar system, creating this reddening effect on everything that we see as we try and look beyond the edges of our solar system.
1: So, like, what impact would that reddening have on our, on our science, on our understanding of the universe? Well, it,
0: it would mean that our understanding of the temperature of everything is just a little bit off. Um, Not a lot, but there there have been people that have tried to explain some of the effects in the cosmic microwave background as perhaps being caused by uh, effects of um, the Oort cloud adding a little bit of polarity or removing a little bit of polarity. People are making guesses, trying to understand what could be possible, and um, we really don't know. And that's one of the awesome things and horrifying things at the exact same time.
1: I mean, I mean, for example, specifically, like with the cosmic microwave background radiation, the temperature changes that they're trying to detect are really minute. And so...
0: Now, the nice thing is this would be a constant effect, assuming, and this is another, it's a huge assumption, assuming that the Oort cloud has has a perfectly smooth distribution. And people have taken the time to try and look, look at that, trying to see if they can find... Um, some sort of oh, a variation at the largest scales so that could be explained by thickness variations in the Oort cloud. Um,
1: like when you're looking through the Hills cloud, you know, you're looking through like the, the, the plane of the ecliptic through the Oort cloud, maybe you're going to get a right. different reading.
0: And and so these are all things that people are trying to understand. Um With the data that we have so far, it hasn't been at high enough a resolution that we can actually make out any effects to polarimetry or reddening that could be explained exclusively with the Oort cloud being the cause.
1: Now, you know, we've talked about how the Oort cloud is really invisible. So what would it take to actually get out there and and observe objects? A lot
0: of time. I mean, it, it, it's, it sounds like I'm being sarcastic, but we're talking about 0.8 light years distance. So the best we can really do is wait for object after object to do like Sedna has done and come for a visit and over time build up the orbits of a small catalog of objects that, that they come to us rather than us going to them. That's the best we can do. So more power to fi- folks like Mike Brown, who are out there trying to discover the the largest objects of the Kuiper Belt and the nearest objects of the Oort Cloud.
1: I remember, and I you know this is just coming to me now that there was a someone had put together a mission concept to be able to actually get a spacecraft out into at least the near part of the Oort Cloud and be able to start, you know, and it would essentially be a space telescope sent out into the Oort cloud and it would just be observing objects and maybe fly past one if it can can find one. But it would take, as you said, 100 years to get out to a place where it could do some science.
0: And even more problematic than that is, well, first of all, you have light travel time so that the signal is going to take months to get back to Earth if you do get a telescope out there. But you'd have to launch a really big telescope because the Oort cloud will be extraordinarily diffuse. This isn't Han Solo's asteroid belt. Even our own asteroid belt isn't Han Solo's asteroid belt. And we're talking about tens of Earth masses scattered over a sphere, an entire spherical area that that is 0.8 light years across.
1: I mean, the kind of civilization that could study the Oort cloud would be the kind of civilization that could send spacecraft to other... Well, no that's
0: actually not true because it's easier to see from outside our solar system than inside so if there is an oort cloud out there we we can detect things like this around other solar systems so so detecting an oort cloud from outside the system where you can get the distance such that everything's compacted down and you're looking through the thickness at the edges just like looking at a nebula you can't really see the nebula when you're inside it. If, if you want to see the planetary nebula, you fly away and you see this ring where you're looking through the most parts of it. Um, so, so detecting an Oort cloud, you really want to be that other solar system not too far away.
1: So do we see any Oort clouds around other stars?
0: We have seen things that resemble the Oort cloud around other stars. And, and so this is where we continue to think that our understanding should be perfectly reasonable. Unfortunately, things like nailing down exactly what its mass is, exactly what its furthest limit, exactly what its inner limit, those sorts of details were not there. But in terms of, yes, this is a perfectly rational theory to explain the comets, to explain objects like Sedna, there we're onto something and we're onto something that's fairly typical to see throughout our galaxy.
1: That is awesome. Okay, well, thank you very much, Pamela. My pleasure.
2: Thanks for listening to Astronomy Cast, a nonprofit resource provided by Astrosphere New Media Association, Fraser Kane, and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com. You can email us at info at astronomycast.com, tweet us at astronomycast, like us on Facebook, or circle us on Google. We record our show live on Google, every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern or 2000 Greenwich Mean Time. If you missed the live event, you can always catch up over at CosmoQuest.org. If you enjoy AstronomyCast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax-deductible for U.S. residents. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend us to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to this show, point your podcasting software at astronomycast.com podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Our music is provided by Travis Searle and the show is edited by Preston Gibson.